The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you've joined us. Uh, I have a great uh, guest today. It's a real privilege uh, to uh, to welcome a, a friend and a colleague. And we're going to be talking about my favorite subject. Okay, last week I told you my favorite subject was natural history museums, and it is. But the best thing in the world is uh, talking about interpretation and interpretive planning and developing exhibitions, which is what I've spent uh, more than 20 years doing, and I still don't think I can define it very well. But my guest today, Dean Krimmel, and I will uh, take a stab at that, and uh, I'll let Dean introduce himself, but let me tell you that he works with uh, senior staff and education curatorial teams and community stakeholders to create interpretive plans and exhibitions, and uh, like like me, he has his own uh, consulting practice that has grown uh, and developed and matured over the years, and so Dean, it is a real privilege. Uh, to uh, finally have you on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Carol. It's, it's, it's great to be here uh, to, you know, adding our voices in a, um, God, this, the, you know, the, the mediums of the day, right? Once upon a time, we would have done this probably over coffee or um, maybe on a radio show, but, uh, yeah, but uh, here we are. Here we are well, in conversation with our colleagues. on a radio show. <laughs> so, uh, so Dean, please share your career path with our audience. Oh, let's see. I, um, I'm one of those throwbacks. I, I describe my, my museum life as um, in terms of almost an apprenticeship model from another era. Um, when, uh, uh, when I wandered in kind of through the back door in the early 80s uh, and for the most part, learned on the job. Um, I, I got out of college in the late 70s and had a history degree and, and did the usual, oh, is it law school? Is it this? Is it that? Is it academia? And um, I, I, I got a couple, several different jobs with a, a firm, John Milner Associates in, in Pennsylvania and Westchester, that did cultural mitigation and preservation and archaeology. And I got plunged in, I, I call it an immersion experience, um, on and off for a couple of years doing archival research uh, 
and seasonal excavations um, figured out I did not want to be an archaeologist. I couldn't tell colors, soil changes, and I said, well, that's not me. Um, but I did love this immersion in primary sources about place, urban history, uh, land records, taxes, census. I understood a little bit for the first time how places come to be. And this was all, all with uh, highway projects and this, this kind of 1960s and 70s um, progeny of, or, or um, product of, of trying to understand before you destroy, uh, which is still with us to some extent. Um, probably people say to a large extent. Um, that took me to the Peel Museum, which is a city history museum in Baltimore, uh, now closed. That was the City Life Museums. Um, and I volunteered there uh, in between jobs and got to know the curator and, and other staff people doing research with, with collections and other kinds of questions they had, uh, including a question, uh, what, should the 20th century be saved? This is in 1982, I think, and they were doing a program about contemporary collecting. So it was really, it was a bit of a, a, an intro into the museum world, a place I'd, I loved museums growing up, never, ever thought I, I had the ability or, or the, uh, the, the way to work in them or saw a place for myself. So that, that, that led to a, um, a job offer after I, I volunteered for about a year or so, um, and, um, the, the, the assistant director, Barry Dressels, um, approached me and said, um, you know, their curator had left, their, their person who ran their reference center had left, and he said, would you, you know, they, they recommended you for the job and, and uh, as the, run the reference center with helping patrons and taking care of collections. And, and he said there's, um, it, as I've told, told this story a lot over the years, that, uh, it's my, one of my narratives, right? Um, he said the hours are bad, the pay is low, and there's really no room for advancement. You know, what do you think? And I... I paused for, you know, like a, a New York minute and went, I'm your guy. <laughs> this is it. Uh, you know, I, I, need, I knew, I, and I think implicitly I knew I needed, I needed to find a place in the world, and this was it. I loved everything about it. And over the next 14 years, all those, those three things went away. The pay got better, the hours got better, and I did advance and do different things, uh, ultimately being a curator of, of local history and um, and, and developing exhibitions uh, and collecting, uh, helping build a new building, working on living history programs, writing grants. I mean, this whole, whole everything you could ask for in a museum education. Um, and, um, but what it started with, my first job, I want to make this point and I'll stop. It started with this reference center job, and I, I guess I was inclined to like to help people, but working with patrons every day and, and getting interested in helping them figure out the material they needed and how to find it. And this was a strong prints and photographs and maps, kind of visual archives. Um, that stuck with me, um, helping people uh, figure things out and taking an interest in their project and learning something new every day. So that's, um, that, that's my beginning in the museum. I was there for 14 years, uh, and, and the Baltimore City Life Museum is famously closed, and it's 20 years now in June. Um, yeah. And that put me, that sent me into, you know, into, uh, into a bit of a spiral, but I ended up working um, stubbornly. I went to another job where I created a museum in downtown Baltimore at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, uh, in Museum of Nursing History for a school, which was... I, I said, you know, one museum closes, I go in to help start another one. So that's, that's a stubborn streak of either museum folk or 
or Baltimore Orioles, I don't know, maybe both. Um, so since then, I've, I've helped uh, create a, uh, I've, I went on my own about five years after that and, and worked on museum projects and exhibitions and, and plans. And, and really, the fire, I think the, the other, the, 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 the experience of having, um, you know, falling in love with a field and finding a place and learning also how difficult it is, and then having museums cl- a museum close over your, you know, on top of you, uh, was really instructive. I think everybody I worked with has always taken that with with them, uh, that it uh, that this happens, and there must be better ways to be, you know, the jargon both viable and sustainable. Um, it's a you know it's it's a long haul. So I don't think it it never diminished the passion and my belief in museums, but it's uh, it's helped me. I guess it thickened my skin somewhat um, and convinced me of the need to to try to prove it, try to sell it to sell it in that in that positive way of convincing people and answering that so what question every, with everything we do, uh, showing our value so Carol, that was probably a lot longer than you expected, but um, no, 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 no. It was fabulous, and I'm I'm interested. And in we don't have enough time in the show to to go back through all of the various uh, areas where your paths and mine, we are contemporaries, uh, uh, crossed inadvertently. Uh, you know, we were ships passing in the night and didn't meet each other until long after. Uh, you know, let's say you know a couple of of sad experiences in Baltimore. Uh, it <laughs> Baltimore was sort of the the uh, Bermuda Triangle for a while of uh, of museums and cultural institutions. But I agree with you. It really uh, it sticks with you when you realize that one of the reasons that something closes is that there isn't anybody thumping on the table going, my goodness, we need to keep this because it is part of the cultural fabric. And when an institution starts to vie away from that center of cultural fabric, you know, not a whole lot's going to help it. So uh, so we both took that away. Um, but let's move on to more fun things to talk about. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that uh, I brought you on the show today is that uh, you're speaking at the Small Museums Association conference. It's going to be uh, next next week or the following week. It's it's February nineteenth through the twenty first. So it's uh, February nineteenth through the twenty first um, here in College Park, Maryland. Correct. That's right. That's right. A new a new location. It's it's their thirty third conference, and in the past for a while, I'm not sure how long, but it it just moved this year from Ocean City, Maryland. And there, um, the folks involved tell me it's the attendance is bigger than ever, which they suspected because Ocean City, uh, a great place to go to see snow on the beach, just was a little far for some people in the Mid Atlantic, which is. Uh, generally where people come from, but there's a, something, the estimate's over 300, they're up to 320 people, and a lot, and they're from all over the country, so um, it's that D.C. College Park, you know, that, that, that draw, I suspect, and, and, the, um, and the idea of small museums. Yeah, yeah, um, so uh, I was just going to ask, um, what, what specific issues are addressed at a, a conference? You know, what's, what's unique to small museums? Um, part of it is when you look at the program, the people go on the website um, and you see the, the conference sessions and the, the topics, they're pretty similar to other museum conferences. 
Um, there, the the sessions are on things like the trends trends in museums and education and social media. You know, um, there's concerns of gender and LGBTQ issues, uh, accessibility for deaf and hard of hearing um, programs, um, Girl Scout badges. Uh, there's evaluation and audience research. There's um, Gretchen Jennings is going to talk about empathy in museum practice. Um, there's things on software and technology, uh, staffing, make, using interns, uh, uh, working without a director, museum director. Um, those are pretty similar, aren't they? Uh, but with this conference and the reason this, this, the organization is, came into existence is, is because people, and they all, I don't even know if they define it anymore with budget. Probably once upon a time they did. But I think the leadership... Um, they really talk about museums that feel small because the challenges they face that relating to their, their budget, their budget capacity, their staffing, and their space. So um, it's kind of self-identified, but it's this notion that you just have these limited capacity, especially, especially with budget. Um, so many of these organizations are, are volunteer-run, uh, and, uh, and others have you know, several paid staff, but they're not. So they're really, there's a way to measure them clearly. Um, but it, um, they tend to have that, 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 you know, that relatively, and they're generally in smaller, you know, they're, they're in towns and cities of all kinds of sizes, and they go from history to, to art to, to science. So uh, to some extent, they're all over the, all over the place, but they, they do have those uh, people who need especially practical advice. And every, well, then again, we all do. But, um, so you got it. Their, their, their mission, SMA, Preaches bring give people tangible ideas, um, tactics, uh, tools to take back. Um, and the other piece of that is like most conferences, but especially in the smaller ones, uh, nurture people, mentor, uh, help people build, uh, give them advice on resume building. Um, you know, being be inclusive. Um, so it's uh, it's that it's that small community. Sensibility, and I, I go—I I don't go every year, but I go, I go frequently, and that's that's what I find. Um, and I'm a—you know—I'm not on—I'm I'm that outsider. I'm not living that life every day, but um, but I, I did once upon a time in a small to medium size. So, and I work with a lot of small places. So I, um, yeah, I definitely have, have a, a sense of uh, a sense, you know, empathy and, and understanding that you're doing everything right. It's probably the jokes would be I'm wearing all the hats. Right, exactly, and you know, I I uh, I tend to enjoy going to smaller uh, conferences uh, just because the conversations can be stronger. And and my experience, I've never worked in a, a small museum. I have uh, you know, I have many, I have a number of clients in, in smaller organizations, and I find that the dedication is uh, magnified. And uh, they also have, while their budgets may be limited, it, it forces them to be very strategic and I find often more creative. So I always look to smaller, small institutions and the Small Museum Association to sort of see where some of the more innovative trends are going to be. Uh, so I think it's going to be very, a very exciting uh, conference. Uh, what are you talking about? I am. Uh, I hope I give people some uh, some, some practical. Having, having talked talked up the practical uh, advantages and the practical tip ends. Oh, I am talking about interpreting slavery at historic sites with histories of slavery. My my talk 
so, so, and my, my promise <laughs> is to give people kind of both the tools and the, I don't know if the empowerment or the encouragement to what I called, what I called not, not, uh, origin, not very original, disrupt the narrative or disrupting the narrative. Um, the narrative of many historic, most historic sites, and we're getting better, but most of them that, that interpret slavery is, is, is of the, uh, the white owners, the white families, maybe the house or the farm, you know, so-called farm. Maybe it's a plantation, maybe it isn't technically. Um, but it, it really is one of, um, of a one-sided, limited story. And um, there's a lot of great organizations around, uh, like the Tracing Center, um, Whitney Plantation, and more and more sites that are interpreting slavery. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, many people have been doing it for a long, long time, Colonial Williamsburg, and, uh, and, and then uh, the bigger ones like Monticello, and um, I'll, I'll leave some out. But anyway, um, so my, my talk is, is, is disrupting the narrative, researching the history of slavery at your site. It has a, kind of a modest, um, a modest goal of, of of opening people's eyes or reminding them that many of the sources right under our noses contain all we need to know to literally uncover, begin to uncover and recover the lives of real people who were enslaved versus just continuing to talk about, oh, there was slavery here in a general way. Um, and what I'm going to do uh, is use one of, the, one of the projects I worked on where, where I did that. I walked in and uh, tried to help people f- uh, create a, an interpretive framework, and, and, um, and we started talking about, they know a fair amount about the, the, the um, series of owners over 200 years, and, they, and, and people told me, well, there were slaves here as well. And so I just dug a little deeper, and it, uh, actually I just, it, the metaphor would be I, I scratched the surface, and I went, oh, well, what about this, and what about that? And people, oh, oh yeah, I guess we knew about that. Uh, and it, it took me no time. This is a little bit of an epiphany. It took me no time to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to uncover some interesting stories and beginnings of names and people, and just the basic, basic, almost 101 of what it is to say, hey, wait a minute, these, there were other people here. There's, a f- there's not only a fuller story, but we, uh, we have the beginnings of it right here. <clears throat> excuse me, wow. right here, right now. So it, could I read... Well, I'll read yes. you to, yeah, in a minute. Yes. Let me just, and I'd like to read you just one little, uh, one little thing that I teased out of a record. If, but yeah, we can do ding, it. Yeah. ding. I'm going to let you read that, but we're going to take a, a, a break first. Uh, and when we come back, see, this is the tease so that people listen to the second section. So when you come back, uh, you can hear what Dean is going to be talking about and, and reading because it's really very, very exciting. And I think that this is a, a, a great beginning to our show of uh, talking about interpretation. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. 
We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Carol Bossert. I'm here today with Dean Krimmel. And right before break, I cut Dean off. Uh, He was just about ready to share with us... a, a piece of primary source information that he uh, he identified when working with a client uh, to help them understand how much they really knew about the individuals who were enslaved uh, at this particular historic site. So, Dean, please go ahead. <laughs> okay, sorry. Here I go. Um, the um, what I, I, I'll what I'm what I'm about to to tell you. Is, is something I teased out of, of literally of two documents. They were um, they're pro- probate records, uh, wills and inventories. One, one was an estate inventory, the other was, was a will. And I just pieced this story together, again, as a fragment, but just as a way to say, wow, look, look at this, look, look what we, you can do, not me, look what anybody can do with some of this information. So here goes. Let me, I'll, I'll read and kind of paraphrase some of this stuff. Um, Winnie is a 43-year-old woman held in bondage on a 300-acre plantation in Charles County, Maryland. She and 25 other enslaved men, women, and children raise wheat, tobacco, attend hogs, cows, sheep, geese, turkeys, and chickens at at a place called Rich Hill, which is uh, near the Potomac River, about 40 miles south of the nation's capital. Uh, It's the winter of 1811. Word spreads throughout the quarter that Samuel Cox Rich Hill's 51-year-old owner is dead. Cox leaves behind a wife, Sarah, and nine adult children, but no will. That meant the future of his personal property is in the hands of administrators who must be approved by the county's orphan court. Over a two-month period that followed between February and April of 1811, Cox's estate is inventoried as debts, are, uh, debts that he owes or, t- or debts that are owed his estate are tallied, and his quote-unquote goods, chattels, and personal estate, unquote, is distributed among his heirs. According to the direction of his administrators, his wife, Sarah Cox, and, and, a, and, and a son. Now, Winnie, the, the 43-year-old woman, Winnie is described as sickly. She and seven other enslaved people are bonded to Sarah. Because Sarah, as the widow, takes a third of the estate. The other, there's other seven other enslaved people, um, range from age from 45 to 2. 
uh, men and women and children. There were 15 other enslaved people from the estate that are bonded to different uh, siblings in the Cox family, different children through the husband's, husband's estate. And there's a list. There's uh, an 18-year-old man named Smith goes to Charity Cox. A 20-year-old Lucy and her child Henry goes to another sister. Uh, and so on. So these 15 people are distributed to about seven or eight different members of the family. So as spring arrives, it's 1811. Spring arrives, Winnie and her fellow bondsmen, they've not only been physically separated, but they've been legally bonded to 10 different estates. There's, we, and I, don't, I actually don't know if that means physically they were separated. You don't necessarily know from this if people were um, sent off or they were allowed to stay, but they are, they are, they are property of different estates. So how do these 15 people cope with this apprehension, the uncertain future, and what happens? Um, so two wow. years pass. Two years. Oh, okay. uh, let me finish up one more thing, because this okay. was the kicker. And then two years pass. In 1813, Sarah Cox dies. That's the wife. Uh, so right. she, and her estate has 12 enslaved men, women, and children. And they, she had a will, so she dictated what happened to these people. And in her will... She sends, she does the same. She sends these 12 people to four or five different children, um, splitting up uh, mother and children at one point in one of these. So um, I'll, I'll close there. That, that was just this glimpse with one record that was, you know, sitting, sitting for, you know, 200 years uh, in, in, in the in archive. I don't know if anybody else has ever seen it before. Um, but my point with my clients was this stuff is right here. And you don't, I wouldn't overly interpret it right away, but that's what I teased out just by, you know, one, one kind of putting it together. So I think these records are here and people have names, people have ages. There's my, 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 my uh, urging with people is to say, again, as, as everybody who interprets slavery says, give people a presence, um, round them out with whatever fragmentary information you have. As, uh, as people, and then go from there to think about deeper things like relationships and so forth. So anyway, that was, that's, the, that's the little fragment, a uh, little glimpse into the past there. Um, that's a, that, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I think that that is, uh, that will be a, a really great core to your, you know, more how-to uh, practical aspect of your talk at, at the Small Museums Association Conference. But it also does show that it isn't a matter of not knowing. It's a matter of having uh, awareness to start asking the questions, and if you don't know where to go to get the answers, there are other people that do, uh, historians such as yourself, and that uh, that these personal stories need uh, need to be told uh, beyond just saying, oh yeah, there were slaves at the plantation, which is just an unacceptable approach in, in this day and age, I believe. So that that is, that's uh Fabulous. You know, one of the questions, Dean, that I've been wrestling with, actually, I had a, a client ask this ask this to me, um, not about uh, an issue related to slavery, but another another topic, and it was sort of like, 
whose history is it? I mean, you know, I, and I think that that's also something that, that, that comes up more often than, than we'd like to think. You know, yes, I mean, as, 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 a, as, a, as a white woman, I'm extremely privileged and I would never, ever understand what it, what it is like to be black in this country or Muslim in this country uh, or, you know, to have been a slave or to be a descendant of slaves. But on the other hand, I think that it is also part of my history as an American, and it is my responsibility to help tell that story. Is that uh, your approach as well? Yeah, I think I, I think I absorbed, I don't know if I'm an outlier, but I, I, from the beginning, I, have, I always had a sense that it was that I didn't have a problem in other people's shoes. That part of my and part of my obligation as a professional was to you know was to have the, the you know the skills and the sensitivity and the and the and also the you know the um, the to make your intention always very clear about who you were and what you were trying to do. Um, I didn't have a I, I've never had a problem um, interpreting and trying to research and understand the African American experience or the the immigrant experience uh, when I did projects. Um, when I walked into the nursing school to do a history of nursing, which is a, you know, 99.9% a female profession, and I helped them put together their story. And um, I never, I, 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 my, it was more, I don't know if it sounds, you know, elitist or high-minded, high but it, I, I had the tools to, to do it, and I had the obligation and the responsibility to do it in a way that was, that represented people well, that understood them. So I, I guess it's a little bit of the training, historian's training, to say, you know, I can, you know, I, I can, you got, you, you, I can walk in people's shoes and understand. You're not pretending you're them, but it's it's understanding the context of, of their lives and 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 making people human uh, and understanding, um, making people human and, and presenting materials that reveal it and reveal decisions and attitudes and so forth. Um, so. It comes back to, yeah, a lot of it comes back to intention and I guess uh, kind of intention and, and um, what you're really trying to do. And if that doesn't come out, I think we smell it in, in our world today, the inauthenticity uh, or the, the using, using you know, history for political means is, is, is pretty easily sussed out because of the intention is, is, is pretty clear. Um, that's a, that's so a long great way of answering, answer. answering your question, but I'm, I've interpreted so much and I also was, yeah, just, I think God was a very, it's a very humbling experience when you interpret and do research on people's lives. Um, that, um, yeah. yep. No, no, I, 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 uh, I like, I appreciate that answer uh, very, very much. And, uh, and, and it does remind me that you and I uh, are, have very, very similar uh Jobs, but we have come uh, at them from very different uh, uh, academic and training backgrounds, and I and I uh, I've always appreciated uh, your approach to looking at interpretation through the lens of oral histories, local history, uh, and and as you say, human human history, uh, and uh, and I've learned a lot uh, from you as I I have just now, so. Um, one of the other things that I just love, and you and I have talked about this before, so I want to make sure that we have time to talk about it on the air, and is your concept about the conversational museum. I think that that is 
really, really an interesting approach. And so, you know, could you just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your your idea of the conversational exhibition and particularly how you're helping your clients look at exhibitions as conversations? Uh-huh. I, um, you're right. We're, we're, listeners will go, oh, no, they've coined another phrase, <laughs> right? Another metaphor that we're a model. Um, I, I came to co- the, this notion of conversation, and, and we, we use it a lot, um, obviously, in life. Um, but I, I, I found myself over the years saying to people in exhibition projects, and then, and then I guess I expanded it to the whole museum, but in exhibition projects that, that um, it wasn't the last word when the, when the exhibit opened. We, we have to realize we're not, like, we're not giving the last word on a topic. And I mostly do history, history exhibits and heritage exhibits. Um, and as you know, you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And we all, we all know that exhibits are a mile wide, an inch deep. Mostly uh, you can get at certain things, but you there's only so much content. So I would say, think, I would try to, I guess I was, what I was trying to do is shape expectations, and I still do. Because the exhibit medium and the whole, it's so expensive, it's so time-consuming, which we can get into a, a whole other thing, right? Um, but that to invest this much work uh, and to, to, um, to not see it as the beginning of something and not just the very end where you suddenly traditionally turn it over to the educators and watch people walk through and you're very happy with yourself and you have a big opening and so forth. And, and it lives on and, you know, and it, it does what it does. Um, but instead to say we worked while we were doing this, while we were developing it, we were in conversation with each other, we were talking to outsiders, stakeholders, informants, people who live this. Uh, when we put this, you know, this, when, when we finish the project and, and put it out there, you should continue thinking of it as, as something you've, you've kind of opened up publicly, something that was uh, conversations were more private before, now it's a public conversation. It's a point of view. It's an argument you're making, so to speak. Every exhibit has these points of view as an, an intention. So put it out there. And if, if you want to get people's response, build in ways to find, well, first off, you have to change, you have to think of it that way. If you don't think of it in, in those terms, you're never going to come up with the solutions from, you know, from talkback boards inside of them to other ways to get people to participate and to, to give feedback or even just to engage them. I think it would shape the way you train your guides if there's guided tours or if there's even any kind of facilitated programming uh, that, that, that this notion is we're in this ongoing discussion as an institution, especially local history and local, local community museums. Uh, you know, that this, is, this is who we are and this is what we're thinking now and what do you think and uh, so forth. So that, that's the exhibit model. I think the entire museum, all of our museums, are in constant conversation, aren't we? Where everybody who works in these uh, is is always um, is always kind of having some discussions with outside folks, and or at least their actions are 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 expressing some, you know, the values and the priorities that a place have. So I guess that's where the the conversation just gets bigger, and maybe it gets too abstract. But um, but this well, notion of two way, a two way thing, is this. Is there, a way to, is there a way for our museums to think of ourselves as this ongoing two-way, multiple, not just two-way, but a multiple, you know, um, 
discussion and conversation with him. So let me stop there. I don't, I don't know if it, I you know, I, I've talked about this once in a while, but I, I don't have any grand theory of it. So hear your response to that. No, uh, you know, I, I, the reason that, that I like it, and uh, let me say that I've had a number of guests on this show who come from the, uh, what I, you know, what we call the digital world, and uh, listeners know, and you may remember too, that I went on a whole rift through December, and I had on a, a variety of people who work in the digital side of museums, and of course, I asked them what digi- to define digital, and I got all, you know, no one can define it, it's like interpretation, uh, but, the po- but their point, um, and not talking about exhibits particularly, but that the you know digital technologies allow facilitate conversations you say something i say something back whether it's on twitter whether it is facilitated through a website and that that uh, portal i think does then move into the physical realm and i i guess as you know you know as as anyone who knows me uh, i I talk to understand things. I have conversations. I may have a thought in my head, but when I have a conversation with you and a little give and take, my my thinking, my understanding deepens. It sometimes shifts and opens up in ways that I hadn't thought about before. And, and that, to me, is the goal of any any exhibition project. It's not just, here I have something that I want to tell you. It's, here I have something that I want to share with you, and maybe I don't even understand all the answers, but but together, what do you think? How can we look at this, this together and understand it more deeply? And I like to see exhibitions that allow that space for whether it's an actual virtual or even metaphorical conversation, meaning that there's space uh, in the exhibition, whether it's white space or whether it's just making sure that we don't tell every single detail so that the audience itself can create some sense of curiosity. Uh, you hit the nail. That, that's when you, you end on curiosity, which is, I just wrote it down as you're talking it. I think that, those of us who do this work are are just intensely curious, and the the wonder, you know, it's like I, we'll probably all come back to some rosebud moment of that is so cool, I didn't know that, or wow, and you know, and, and somebody else has a perspective on it. I think of you know Nina Simon's social objects, where you just have this object. We all knew that before she coined social object, or somebody did that. You know that these things are inherently the meaning is shared, and there's just so much. You learn from other things in this discussion. So how do we encourage it? So back to that planning, as you know, with the, if you get the mindset right in the planning of exhibitions and, and museums and you say we have to encourage this, we have to provide opportunity, we, if we do this, this, you know, this might happen. We, you know, it's not social engineering, but if we create these conditions of encouragement and opportunity, give people permission to do certain things, it has a more likelihood of happening, right? Um, yeah. And we also have to we have to we have to convince designers because we're working in a very collaborative 
intensely collaborative and with creative tensions. People have, yes. you know, uh, so that people go, wait a minute, I don't think you can do that. Uh, or how do you do that? <laughs> you know, or no, we, our schedule doesn't, you know, demands uh, that we move forward. And, you know, um, so I find right, that, so- yeah, I find that you, you, we have to really talk about stuff more and more. I try to get more and more time way up front before, uh, to create a framework and that groundwork of, of thinking and the mindset that says this is what we are doing, the, what you just described. Right. We're not, we're, okay. The exhibit medium is misunderstood for the most part. And, and okay, Dean, I'm gonna, we're, Dean, we're getting deep into the weeds now, which I just love, but, but before we get any deeper, we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, Dean and I are going to talk about some of the other issues that are uh, bedeviling us uh, to get practically to the Conversational Museum. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert.com at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I've been having a great conversation with my friend and colleague, Dean Krimmel, uh, who is an independent uh, museum professional consultant uh, working with museums of all sizes. But... uh, If you, as I, have become fascinated with Dean's uh, thoughts and uh, opinions and insights into the exhibition experience, I hope that uh, you'll have an opportunity to hear him at the Small Museums Association Conference, which will be the 19th through 21st, uh, 24th, I'm sorry, uh, of this month. And there's still time to to register. It's in College Park, Maryland. It's a 
uh, it's a lovely area and it looks as if the weather is going to be good. So if you have an opportunity, do, uh, do become involved with the Small Museums Association and participate in the conference. These small conferences are where we can really, really have great conversations among professionals and uh, take some risks and do some new thinking. And so, Dean, with that, we've got just a little bit more uh, time uh, in this, this, what has been a great conversation. And right before break, we were talking about, you know, some of the challenges that we face uh, within the exhibit process, the interpretive process that sometimes, uh, you know, it can become daunting uh, in moving, uh, moving exhibitions forward in the, in the direction we'd like to. And, and, and one of them, and you and I've talked about that is, you know, we now have a new term, alternative fact in our lexicon. And, you know, I was thinking about that the other day, the word interpretation can sound suspiciously like spin uh, or, you know, I'm only giving you part of the facts. I'm giving you the alternative facts. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're good facts, but they're alternatives. So how, how do we make sure that the interpretive approach that we have all learned, whether we learned it in school or whether we learned it as you and I did through sort of apprenticing and learning by doing, how, how do we make sure that we can move beyond the tight theming and messaging and, you know, five years to get an exhibit out? How, how can we make sure that we create a process that really lends us to creating conversations and not just lectures? Hmm. How much time do we have, right? We have two <laughs> um, minutes. The... Um, it is, it is a challenge. You hear the word interpretation, and it's uh, obviously people you say, hey, that's, that's your interpretation, right? The, and it's subject to interpretation and so forth. Um, I have lately, I've come to this a little late. I'm not sure how old this definition is, but I have adopted or adapted, embraced, and, and trumpeted the definition of interpretation that I read in Sam Ham's great book on interpretation. Um, it comes from the National Association of Interpretation. Um, most, a lot of a lot of outdoors and parks folks. Um, so it, it wasn't a world I know knew all that well. And the, the 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 definition of interpretation is, and it's one I just almost I, I just I'm bludgeoning everybody with my clients and so forth. But I, here it is: it interpretation is a communications, a mission-driven communications process that forges emotional and intellectual connections between the interests and needs of the audience and the meaning inherent in the resources. It could take, it could take a while to unpack that, but what I love about it is it's a way of thinking. It's a mindset. It's, it's first off, it's, communi- it's a process interpretation. It's mission-driven, and it's all really about communication, which puts us as the museum folks in uh, kind of on, on call or obligated to say, hey, we are not just imparting information or create, even creating different viewpoints. We have an audience who has interests and needs. We have resources that have certain meanings inherent in them. Um, and our job is to, to connect the two. Uh, and it's not just, it's not just uh, through information, through intellectual means, it's through emotional means. Um, so I, I don't think that 
that knowing that, embracing that is not going to, you know, it's, it's not going to suddenly, it's not a silver bullet that says, oh, I'm now my interpretation is ironclad. In fact, it, it's the opposite. It says, you, you know, this really is your, your obligation to see it as a, a long-term, ongoing conversation. But that your, my, my thinking is, if you understand that and, 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 and kind of internalize that, uh, that you will communicate that to other people, that it is, that it is intentional, that there is a means by which we do this, and there's a purpose behind what we do. Um, we know, and I'd be the first person to tell you, none of us will say we're going to tell the whole story of something. But, for instance, with slavery at historic sites, we were telling an incomplete story. We're, we're telling a fuller story. If somebody says, hey, you're, you know, you're, what are you doing? You're, we're adding the, the African-American experience. You're going, yes, we are, but we're, the bigger picture is it's a bigger, fuller story. We're always telling, I suspect, only part of it. Um, visitors bring a lot of that to themselves, but our job is to create that framework, that honest, uh, full of integrity, accurate uh, framework that says, uh, this, is, you know, this, is, this is what we know about X. This is, um, this is the context within which this happened. This is the human condition as we understand it. Um, and then Look, have that discussion. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I, 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 uh, I like that definition. You're right. It's it's a little long. Uh, it's not going to fit on the three by five card as easily as we would like it to. But it does have some of the key elements. One of my favorite uh, definitions of interpretive planning, which is not as elegant as yours, is it depends. You know, I don't know. I've had so many clients say, well, if we want to tell this story, how do we tell it? And I always say, well, it depends. It depends on your mission. It depends on your audience. It depends on your community. It depends on what we know. And it depends on our resources and our time and that, you know, that that demon schedule and budget. Uh, but it is an intentional uh, uh, it depends, and I and I and I wonder. You know, one of the things that we're living through right now is, you know, a reaction to, say, the 1900s, where exhibitions were based on one person's, usually a curator, academically trained, highly privileged, uh, uh, decisions. And now we have moved to something that is much more collaborative and that it truly is a process. And that perhaps the times more than the product or, as, as uh, others have said, bringing the audience into that process may be one of the best goals we can achieve for any exhibition. I, I did a lot of exhibits over the years and programs in the, I guess when I was, you know, I don't know, when, whenever it was, but when I was younger and new at it, that were in, I used to say, they were topics or subjects within living memory. And um, I, didn't, I didn't need much reminding to know that I didn't know nearly as much as my audience did about many aspects of the history or the story or the topic or traditions that I had to go out and be, you know, learn more. But I knew I would never have the same perspective. So my, I realized my role was not to know it all and not to tell it all, but to tell, ha- add their voices to it through various means, uh, 
and also then, but then to be, never to shy away from the museum voice, not, not necessarily authoritative, but to dig up information that they, most of us don't know. Uh, maybe it's the origins of something, or maybe it's the cha- when change happened. Uh, provide a bigger context. And history taught me, if you give people the context, they will, they'll see, one, they'll see themselves, and they'll suddenly see the, their lives and their past in a different framework of, oh, I didn't realize that. Um, I didn't, um, the Rowe House exhibit at the Peel Museum opened in 1981, did this visual examination of Baltimore through the row houses, and nobody had ever done it before. And it was this eye-opening thing where people went, oh, there's, uh, I know row houses, I lived in them, but I didn't know that I was living in a one that, from this era and, who, you know, and, and how they changed and so forth. So I always found people bring so much, inform, uh, so much uh, in, intelligence and, and experience to so many of our topics that we that I, I've never been worried about not telling the whole story. You know, you tell parts of the story that help people to 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 to, um, to see themselves and to understand that really it's maybe some nubby issues, and also the bigger context um, that we just don't know. Most of us don't know. So um, that 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 kind of is another one of those things that just got I internalized a long time ago. So it. Um, and I, and, and I know that I have to go out and talk to people and, 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 and learn what they know uh, and how they feel about certain things. And, then, um, and that's what I think we do as, as institutions. So I've, that's what I've tried to, to, to convince people of, that everybody walks through the door, right? The old um, Bill Nye line, the science guy, everybody, uh, everybody you ever meet will know something you don't. It, yes, and you know, I just want to underscore that, uh, Dean. Um, uh, you have given such a good uh, framework for what it, what interpretation is and and how it's it's useful today. But the but the thing that that just is, I come back to, and I'm so glad that you've said it is is really respecting that audience. Uh, you know whether they're coming through the door, whether you know who they are, that they all bring something absolutely fabulous and unique that you can learn from. And I think that that if there is one frustration that I've had over the years, uh, it and working with a with a number of of clients and particularly design firms and and architects is that it is so easy to forget that critical aspect. I mean, it's more than just going out and asking audiences what they like or what they want. It's understanding that they are individuals and that they're all incredibly valuable. You and I love to listen. Yes. We obviously obviously don't mind talking, (laughs) but we love to listen. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I think I do think that that is is something that that we both share. And one of the things I've loved about doing this show is that it's taught me to be a better uh, question creator. And sometimes I think that maybe creating questions. Actually, I think my graduate advisor actually told me this, and it's taken me um, <clears throat> a few years to really internalize it. Is that it's more important to ask a good question than than to uh, anticipate the answer. Yeah, that's great advice. That is. It's yeah. It's and for me, it's. I think I'm. You know, everything I think I'm good at, I know it's a work in progress. <laughs> I can always do better. Uh, but that is so vital. 
because um, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so so that's why uh, that's why they call it we what we do is a practice. Dean, I am <laughs> so glad that you came on the show today. Uh, I I'm looking forward to the Small Museums Association conference that is coming up on the 19th. And uh, do you happen to know when uh, the 2018 dates are? I do, and in fact, it's. The 2018, the easiest way to, to, to think of the Small Museum Association is President's Day weekend. Ah, fabulous, fabulous. And it's, going to, and it's going to be in College Park again, correct? Well, as far as I know, I think that's, the, I don't, um, I was told the dates were February 18th through the 20th in 2018. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's still College Park. I think that's, that was their idea to, to, to keep it there. Um, okay. I, yeah, I'm not 100. percent Hey, could I give a shout a shout to the keynote address? Uh, just no. I'm sorry, we've run out of run time. Out of time? So, okay. Yeah, Alrighty. I'm 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 sorry, Dean, but make sure go on the website, Small Museums Association. It is going to be a great keynote. Uh, so, uh, Dean, thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Wonderful. And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Thank you so much for listening and and joining in this conversation. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 